are officially in the last month of 2022. If you ask any of us in the Times Union newsroom, this year absolutely flew by. But it's not over yet. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. The justices seemed kind of uh, amenable to that argument, but we shall see when they get down to actually making a decision. We'll hear about a growing movement in New York that's pushing for the legalization of magic mushrooms. People take it in all kinds of ways, and there's been some promising research recently that shows that it can really help people with depression, eating disorders, addiction, things where nothing else has worked. And we'll go back to driver's ed to refresh ourselves on some of the basic rules of the road. Two drivers are at stop signs at right angles. The driver on the left yields to the driver on the right. The driver on the right has right of way. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Now let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we are welcoming back, as we do every week, Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler to talk about some of the top headlines that we saw in the last week. Let's begin with the fact that there was a development in a case that we've been following for a while now. We've talked about it on the podcast before, out of Columbia County. What can you tell us about what happened there this week? Yeah, this is the, um, the beating of Harold Handy from uh, 2020. Uh, Handy is a local mechanic who was uh, badly injured in a beating at a 4th of July party. Uh, Four people, including uh, Columbia County Sheriff's deputy and her husband, who's a local gym owner, an IRS agent and a local contractor, were uh, indicted and faced charges in the case. This has been a big deal in Columbia County, where you will see, you know, hashtag justice for Herald signs uh, uh, occasionally. Now, the trial was set to begin with jury selection on Monday, but in a very strange development, there was a private discussion between the judge in the case and uh, the district attorney, Paul Chaika, and they went into the judge's chambers, had a discussion, came out, and the, the trial was adjourned indefinitely. And there was no explanation given to the public. Even more oddly, the explanation was apparently not shared with all of the defense counsel, which leaves the public in the dark as to what might have prompted this. It is uh, highly unusual for uh, an adjournment like this to come after an ex parte discussion, as they say, that is out of the court's hearing between the judge and the district attorney. We have asked pretty much everyone involved uh, for an explanation. And one so far, as we talk on Thursday morning, has not been forthcoming. I give a lot of credit to 
Roger Hannigan Gilson, who has been pursuing this matter for us for um, many moons. The Handy Beating case was uh, a, a significant factor in the ouster of the former sheriff of Columbia County a year ago, and uh, it will continue to roil this county. As a fan of transparency, um, I think the public is owed a little bit more of an explanation. Indeed, it's quite perplexing. And as you said, you can still see the signs along the main routes there in Columbia County. All right, let's move on to another case, this one that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, The justices of the Supreme Court heard arguments this week in the appeal of the ex-Cuomo confidant, Joe Percoco. How did that go? Well, actually, this is this is two cases. Um, this is uh, the appeal brought by uh, Joe Percoco, who, as you noted, is a former executive de- deputy secretary to the former governor and really a guy who uh, Cuomo said uh, likened to his brother, as well as the appeal brought by um, Ellen Calieros, the uh, founder uh, in many ways of Albany Nanotech, also known as SUNY Polytechnic. And both of these cases uh, resulted from uh, the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's investigation into corruption connected to the so-called Buffalo Billion Initiative. They were heard back to back on Monday by the Supreme Court, despite the fact that we're talking about two different cases. Now, in the case of Joe Percoco, Uh, His appeal uh, of not all but part of uh, the crimes he was convicted of is based on the fact that uh, there were certain favors that he did for deep-pocketed campaign donors and and, uh, developers that he did not when he was on the public payroll, but during a bunch of months in 2014 where he was off the public dime and uh, managing Cuomo's 2014 re-election campaign. And Prococo's argument is, you can't hit me for public corruption when I wasn't a public official at the time. And the justices seemed kind of uh, amenable to that argument, but we shall see when they get down to actually making a decision. Now, the appeal brought by Calieros and his co-defendants is based on the uh, what's known as the right right to control theory of wire fraud. And though there is significant legal complexity here, it is a theory that someone has committed wire fraud when you have denied someone else of their right to correct information about the business or the contracting that they are involved in. In this case, that's related to not an allegation, but in this case, for now, the conviction that uh, Calieros and his co-defendants denied a SUNY Polytechnic uh, nonprofit that basically managed or handled property for SUNY Polytechnic of uh, the correct information that it used to establish contracts for these, uh, these developments, the part of the Buffalo Billion Initiative. And the, the court, as well as uh, the attorney for federal for the federal government, seemed even more amenable in those oral arguments to the idea that this uh, right to control theory ought to be bounced. Now, this would be a further diminution of the honest services uh, statute, 
which uh, guides federal prosecution of corruption cases. The exact same statute came up kind of most famously uh, a little bit more than a decade ago in the federal prosecution of former Senate Majority Leader Joe Bruno. So lots of New York state corruption action this week at the Supreme Court. Indeed, and, and very complicated as well for the layperson. Yes. Thank understand. you for coming to my TED Talk on this. Yeah. When, uh, when do you think the Supreme Court can be expected to rule on these cases? I mean, hard to say. You know, the current uh, session will roll over and, and go into next year. So it could be any time between now and, uh, and next June. All right. We'll keep an eye out for that. All right. Moving on to a local story uh, out of suburban Albany County, I should say. Uh, 17 teachers are suing the South Colony School District over the placement of hidden cameras in a middle school bathroom. Uh, Tell us more about what's happening there. Yeah. Patrick Morgan, who was a veteran teacher, served almost uh, 30 years at Sand Creek Middle School, uh, was arrested uh, last winter and admitted in a plea deal that he struck and was uh, was effectuated in court just a couple of weeks ago to placing a camera in a co-ed uh, restroom. Obviously, exceedingly creepy behavior. And now 17 teachers have brought suit against Patrick Morgan, as well as the school. It says the school should have Uh, recognized or seen, heeded the warning flags in previous disciplinary action that was taken against Morgan, although they did not detail those disciplinary cases in their their lawsuit. Obviously, a, a very disturbing, very weird case that is probably going to cost taxpayers um, significantly. Indeed. Well, we'll be following that as well. One last topic I want to cover today, and it comes from last week, actually, but because last week was a holiday, we didn't get to uh, address it. Um, and it did happen on the holiday itself. So Thanksgiving morning, there was a clash at the annual Turkey Trot road race that went viral. What happened there? Yeah, the Turkey Trot is, of course, a popular 10K and two runners, Xavier Salvador, who now lives in Washington, but is a runner with uh, local ties, and Jack Huber, who is a a well-known Delmar runner, were uh, contesting for, I believe it was fourth and fifth place. And on video, which was captured from a couple of angles, Salvador appears to, to bump Huber with his hip and put him into a metal barricade. Both of the runners kind of go flat out in what looks like a very painful collision into a metal barricade. And thank God neither of them um, were seriously injured. One video clip um, has been uh, shared by running publications, by you know Michael Johnson, who's a former Olympian. Even just in the first uh, 36 hours or so, it was viewed more than 360,000 times. In response, the race referees and, uh, and race officials uh, disqualified Salvador, who was very apologetic and said that uh, his uh, hip-checking uh, young Mr. Huber was not intentional. I should note as well that, uh, that Huber is the son of Mike Huber, who is a former Times Union Digital uh, team member. And... Uh, 
it didn't make us go ouch any louder, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it is quite a clip without a doubt. Absolutely. Head over to timesunion.com to catch it if you haven't seen it already. I know I, I watched it several times, you know, just kind of looking at it and in people, I was out in Boston for Thanksgiving and people out there were talking about it too. So it was kind of a, an interesting experience on Thanksgiving there. But um, all right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us and we will check back in with you next week. Happy December. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Let's move on to some health news now. Is New York on track to legalize magic mushrooms for medicinal use? There's a growing movement across the state to make that happen as more research is trickling out on potential mental and physical health benefits of using the now illegal psychedelic fungi. I spoke to Times Union health reporter Rachel Silberstein to learn more. When you say magic mushrooms, like, what do you mean by magic mushrooms exactly? When people talk about legalizing magic mushrooms, I think they're referring to legalizing psilocybin, which is the psychoactive compound in mushrooms that give you that psychedelic effect. But people take it in all kinds of ways. And there's been some promising research recently that shows that it can really help people with depression, eating disorders, addiction, things where nothing else has worked. It has been used in trials as sort of a breakthrough drug. And what exactly, you know, because people, it's touted both in, you know, in science maybe and in pop culture as, you know, psychedelic and, you know, causing hallucinations and stuff like that. Like what it... Are they talking about like trying to legally sanction medication that gives you hallucinations? So there's a number of different ways to take it. Like I I spoke to two people for the story. One was, you know, a veteran political, uh, you know, operative in Troy who is befriended a mushroom farmer, a gourmet mushroom farmer. He doesn't, he doesn't grow the psychedelic kind, but the number one thing that customers kept asking him for was psilocybin. And it's very illegal in New York and across the country. It's like a schedule, is it a schedule one drug, which means, you know, you can't possess it, can't sell it, can't grow it, nothing. Um, and so he, you know, started talking to his neighbor who works on other political campaigns and they were started to chat about psilocybin and why, you know, the time might be right for New York to start looking at legalizing this compound. Um, there's a variety of ways people use it, but like, some people will go on a guided trip with a therapist, so they will engage, sort of embrace the psychedelic aspects of it. They will sort of sort out in one intensive session under supervision and guidance and with extensive research, you know, sort out all kinds of hangups and blockages in, the, in their minds that have sort of been holding them back in life. And that's how one of the people I spoke to used it. Other people, like folks with migraines, cluster headaches, um, a lot of police officers and veterans who suffer from uh, PTSD, um, even though it's illegal, they have, you know, sort of an underground network where they share information about how to microdose psilocybin and they take it in sort of a capsule form. Um, and there's very little psychedelic effect. This one officer I spoke to who is from the Albany area um, and happened was at 9-11 and suffered, you know, not just PTSD, but also like lung damage and some health problems, mm-hmm. um, said, 
after he started microdose, microdosing psilocybin, he not only did his PTSD improve, but his eyesight improved, his memory improved. I mean, this sounds a little psychedelic, but he felt like he was walking in the matrix, walking ahead of time. Um, and he just, but he said it wasn't psychedelic. And he just he said it's just enhanced his life in so many ways, his relationships. Um, and he used to arrest people for it. And he said he feels a little bad about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is it does seem like sort of the public you know, sentiment about this is changing. And Oregon actually in 2020 became the first state to decriminalize the drug. That's what's going to be my next question. I mean, where is it legal? Is it legal anywhere? Uh, I think a bunch of cities have already legaled it, right? Like after Oregon did it, then Denver had to do it. And I think there's a few like localities that have decriminalized it. In New York, there's two bills that are that just have a, an assembly sponsor, which means it probably won't go anywhere unless someone in the Senate takes it up. Um, and one of them would decriminalize it and just say, like, if you use it, you won't go to jail. You know, you can it or sell it. I, I think now that like more than half of the states in the nation have legalized marijuana in some form, activists and proponents really think that this year it can, you know, gain some traction. So it would kind of follow the same path. I mean, in theory, it would follow the same path that marijuana right. did to legalize. They could do sort of this gradual piecemeal where they first legalize it in certain settings. Like the second one bill would legalize it completely. The other one would be more like approve certain therapists to use it in their therapy practice and provide like some some guidelines. Like, you know how we've legalized marijuana, but have like a board that oversees it and it's heavily regulated. So that's what I think lawmakers want to do. They want to make sure there's a board that oversees it and regulates which therapists can use it and how they can use it. But this is not no longer like an obscure, you know, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs is launching clinical trials about psilocybin and MDMA. The FDA uh, recently declared psilocybin a breakthrough therapy for treatment of depression like severe depression, that nothing else works. And so there so is peer-reviewed research being done. I think a lot of it is in the early stages, and that's kind of a challenge. I think I was reading a little bit about the challenges in doing a blind study when there's the patients in these studies are, are very complicated. Like having someone go off all of their medications when they're severely depressed is kind of hard mm-hmm. um, in order to make control for you know other things that might be helping with their depression. There are challenges, but... The early trials were really promising. That's fascinating. So there's an appetite for it, for sure. Pun intended, I guess. <laughs> Especially now with the pandemic, you know, mental health is such a crisis. And it's just like this intractable problem that policymakers talk about, but no one no one really has any solutions. And so this seems like time to talk about it. How exactly are these mushrooms administrated? I know that there is still research going on about what the most effective way is. But generally speaking, do most people take them in pill form? Do most people like eat mushrooms like you would eat mushrooms on a salad? Like how do people consume these these mushrooms for for medicinal purposes? I think the way we understand magic mushrooms like in pop culture and the way we may have experienced it in college or high school was just eating these like really gross tasting like mushroom stuff. Um, and <laughs> things then that look vaguely like things mushrooms explode on the wall, you know, things explode in the sky. Um, but I, I think for a lot of folks who are doing this because they need it to help with some like real, you know, mental or medical issue, you know, they're, they're not really looking necessarily for the trip. So there's, there's multiple ways to administer it. Some people are looking for that sort of psychedelic trip where they sort out like all the problems in their lives and one sort of transformative multi-day experience and other folks are just looking to manage like chronic issues and for them there's like 
capsules that are, you know, people have been experimenting with dosages and there's YouTube channels where folks are experimenting with dosages and sort of guiding others to say, you know, this is how much you should take each day. And, and microdosing basically says you take a capsule of like just the psilocybin and it's dosed out. So you don't really, it doesn't really like impact your life or affect the way you function. Um, mm-hmm. But it does sort of like make your life a little bit easier. That's interesting because the only experience that I ever had was not taking them, but witnessing a friend doing so. And after she did in our dorm room hallway, she had a conversation with her cheeseburger, like a very <laughs> deep, deep conversation yeah. with her cheeseburger. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to marijuana, right? Now that like it's legalized, we're seeing, we're learning about all the different strange and we're, strains, and we're kind of scientists, and it's not just like you get what you get and and hope for the best, you know. Marijuana obviously uh, led the way. And, you know, if psilocybin follows suit, is this going to open the door for other kinds of research on other previously illegal drugs? Yeah, I mean, there's already promising results in trials for MDMA. What is that exactly? Um, I guess it's like the active ingredient in what we used to call ecstasy or molly. Like it's, it's the drug that, you know, it's been used a lot in therapy. I think that's become increasingly a lot more interest in the, you know, clinical community Um, And I think, you know, people in general are just sort of scrutinizing why a lot of these drugs became illegal in the first place. Um, Mm -hmm. And the war on drugs, which, you know, jailed a lot of people for using these drugs. And now we're realizing that, you know, maybe they need to have a second look. After the break, who has the right of way at a four-way stop sign? We're going to go back to a very basic driver's ed lesson. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Anyone who wants to get a driver's license in New York State has to study the rules of the road first. There's a written test to get a learner's permit, and after you get a learner's permit, you have to take a DMV-approved driver's ed course. So at some point, you learn the answer to a question that Times Union reporter Abigail Rubel tackled in her weekly transportation column recently. Who has the right of way at a four-way stop sign? The answer is both straightforward and complicated at the same time. So I reached out to her for a little much-needed refresher, at least in my case. So let's talk about a question that came your way for your transportation column, your getting there column, that, you know, it's funny, we all learned this in driver's ed or we were supposed to, but in practice, it's always a lot more complicated. <laughs> so the question is, who has the right of way at a four-way stop? And that is an intersection with four stop signs. So how did you tackle that question? As you said, it is the sort of thing that you learn or you're supposed to learn in driver's ed. So, of course, I went to the driver's ed source book, the Department of Motor Vehicle Driver's Manual, uh, Chapter 5, which discusses right-of-way and intersections. 
what's the process? So say I pull up to a stop sign and there are, you know, let's start with one other person. So there's one person to my right. The first thing is if the driver who gets there first always has right of way. Mm -hmm. It gets more complicated when two drivers arrive at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Which Which happens in real life. This is not a rare situation. And we've all been there where you pull up to a stop sign and someone else is there and you stop and no one knows who's supposed to go first. (laughs) Then you do that like really awkward, like waving, like where you're both waving at each other and you can't interpret the waves. Or like one person inches and the other person inches. Yeah. So whoever arrives there first gets to go first. If you arrive at the same time, if you're on the same road traveling in opposite directions, there's no issue. You can both proceed safely across. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is why signaling is very important because Mm -hmm. you have to know if someone's going straight or turning. Use your signals. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But if there's, you know, say three people, four people at a stop, at a four-way stop, it's the first person who gets there, but then it adds a layer of complication too with, you know, whoever's turning right or left, right? Right. Absolutely. So the next order of operations is that if two drivers are at stop signs at right angles, the driver on the left yields to the driver on the right. The okay. driver on the right has right of way. And the same thing if three drivers arrive at the same time, first the rightmost driver, then the center driver, and then the driver uh, on the furthest left. And in, the, and in the case of turns, traffic that is going straight or turning right has right of way over traffic that is turning left. That's a lot to, to keep in mind. I mean, it's a very simple you know, if you break it down and visualize it, it's a very simple concept, but people still seem to have trouble with it because the rules of traffic aren't always black and white, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, obviously signal, if someone breaks those rules, the move is not, I have the right of way, therefore I must go. It's, you know, yield and don't get in a car crash. Exactly. Or as my grandfather told me, be vigilant. He always told me that every time he saw me after I got my license, he'd say, be vigilant. (laughs) Absolutely. The person I took driver's ed from told me to always drive like you have your learner's permit. (laughs) That's great advice. So, you know, you write your transportation column every week, right? Yep. Every week comes out Mondays. Questions like this, do questions like this come to you a lot? Yeah, I get a lot of like traffic safety type questions, some right of way type questions. One of the more common things people write into me is they say, I don't think the stoplight is working correctly. I think the timing is off. <laughs> uh, and and so, you know, I, I contact the appropriate, you know, whoever owns the municipality, <laughs> municipality, whoever owns the stoplight, whoever operates it and say, you know, someone said this isn't working. Is it working? And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But, but I, get a, I get a lot of uh, stoplight questions. And now that I've mentioned that, people are going to realize they can write into me about that. I'm going to say a bunch more. <laughs> well, I, you know, I've had moments where, you know, in the city of Albany where the stoplights, you know, very rarely, this doesn't happen a lot, but like the stoplight will freeze or something and it'll just never change. And you sit there for a couple of minutes and it's definitely longer than you would ordinarily, especially if you know the patterns of these lights, like you drive them every day. So they do malfunction occasionally, right? That's not me imagining. Oh, no. Certainly sometimes they need to be tweaked or sometimes, especially the Department of Transportation owned traffic signals, those Mm -hmm. almost all operate on sensors. They can sense when cars are approaching and sometimes those sensors get thrown a little bit out of whack and need to be recalibrated. Gotcha. Let's talk briefly 
before I let you go about some of the larger topics that you've tackled, you know, recently or since I last talked to you or since you were last on the podcast. Uh, someone wrote in saying that road signs are blindingly reflective at night these days. Like, especially when you have your, your brights on at night, like sometimes you can't see anything else. Uh, so I did a little research on sign reflectivity, which mm-hmm. was fascinating. What did you find out that was really interesting? Most signs these days are retro-reflective. So n- normally when, when, when light hits a surface, it bounces off at the same angle that it approached, right? Like mm-hmm. think of like a billiard ball bouncing off, off the wall of a pool table. Mm-hmm. Um, Basic physics. Right. <laughs> Which was a long time ago for me. <laughs> same. Oh, yeah. Uh, some surfaces uh, scatter light, which means it goes in different in all different directions than the one it came from, depending on, you know, the angle that it came in at. Mm-hmm. Retro-reflective surfaces, which is what most traffic signs these days are made of, direct the light in the same direction, which makes it really good for road signs because it sends most of the light back to the driver and not out into the ether. Gotcha. The State Department of Transportation has been installing signs with increased reflectivity to make them more visible. There was one study that from Texas A&M's Transportation Institute in 2014 that looked at whether signs could be so bright that they caused reduced legibility and glare and became a safety concern because they were so bright. And that focused on rural roads, especially where there's no other lighting that, you know, could reduce the Diffuse it somehow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that found some evidence that those signs could be too bright. Um, there wasn't a measured reduction in visibility, but mm-hmm. drivers did lose a little bit of ability to deflect potentially hazardous objects as the signs became more reflective. But there's no federal standards or anything that's like, signs can only be so reflective. Generally, it's considered the more reflective, the easier it is to see, the better. Mm-hmm. So it can't like be so high that it blinds you kind of thing. There is not evidence that suggests that, that I yeah. can find. Interesting. Uh, well, driving at night, you know, as the older you get, the more your eyes kind of age becomes harder for people to drive at night anecdotally. So yeah, well, absolutely. And about half of traffic fatalities occur after dark. So you really got to be safe out there. If you have a burning Capital Region transportation related question, Abigail Rubel wants to hear it. Go ahead and email her at gettingthere at timesunion.com. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Rachel Silberstein, and Abigail Rubel for their contribution to this episode. And stay tuned. We've got a brand new podcast series by the Times Union debuting very soon. Here's a taste of what's in store. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. 
but no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Libertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Coming soon, wherever you listen to podcasts.